reading 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Okay. Or do you not know what that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Bless the reading of the word. Appreciate Ashley being willing to do that. And so today we are going to be talking to you um, about um, what we have had as the English language since 1914, a word called homosexuality. Um, but I need to say a couple of things to you before we get started. So you're getting ready to get a series of disclaimers. I generally have five to ten slides when I teach. Today we have 101. So this is going to be a very long and thorough teaching. So you need to buckle in and get ready for the duration. And pray for Rachel and our children's workers upstairs that God would help this time to pass quickly for her and for the rest. But I also need to say one thing. Last week I made a promise to you guys that we were going to not only talk about homosexuality, but we were also going to touch on the gender identity issue um, and what the Bible and what Jesus may have had to say about that. But as you can tell, I have 101 slides on homosexuality and things that I'm going to be talking with us about. So I cut all of that out of this teaching. And I made the decision to do that. It wasn't a group of people that decided that. I went with the topic that I've been asked about the most. Um, and so this is what I'm going to do with the gender, gender issue in regards to us um, understanding our gender identity. On Sunday, October 14th, after brunch, if you are interested in hearing a teaching on that particular topic, I'm going to stay after brunch in this space and give that portion of this talk, which should take about 35 to 40 minutes for us to be able to engage that particular topic. We will continue to announce that. We will let that get out to you. But we do want you to know that we are taking that as equally as um, sensitive, but yet important conversation for us to talk about but I made the decision today to just focus on um, the homosexuality today. Um, so I also want to say as a disclaimer that I've wrestled with this topic for seven years. I am standing up here fighting back tears because there are people that worshipped with us at one point in time that um, I gave this talk to them in my office and we embraced in tears and shed great love, and they are no longer worshiping with us. And so all of those emotions and all of those memories may come out in this talk, and you might have to give me a minute to recover. I do have tissues in one pocket so that I can gather myself as quickly as possible, but I do feel like this is um, the time for us to have this discussion. It is very emotional. It's, um, it's, you're going to have moments where you are, if you were to do, texting language. It would be OMG. You know, you'd be like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe that we're talking about this or dealing with this. And so it's going to be a roller coaster ride of emotion. But um, I do want you guys to know that um, I feel like after these years of reading the dozens of books and listening to several sermons that today is the day for us to address this issue. And so with that, I also want to say that um, Church of the City, New York, uh, as a friend of mine, John Tyson, um, this summer actually did a talk similar to this. Um, and if you were to go back and listen, you'll find that um, I felt like that his outline nailed the last seven years of my research. And so I am going to be using three points similar to his three points because I felt like it helped me coherently walk us through what's a very serious subject 
also a very sensitive subject, and I wanted us to be able to do it calmly with great integrity, great stewardship, and lots of humility, and to be able to handle this in a way knowing that there are many of us that have different stances on what I'm going to talk about today. And so his outline really served as a conduit for me to be able to channel my thoughts. And I would encourage you guys to Google it and look. He did an incredible series over the summer called The Controversial Jesus, and I would love for all of you to listen to it. I think you'll be blessed by it. I feel like John has a special anointing in our generation. All right, so I need to say, too, as another disclaimer, and like I said, I feel like I'm at the end of a mortgage contract where it's like, oh, my goodness, is there one more legalese that we need to talk through? Um, So just be prepared. I'm going to come with a few more. One of the things that I want us to remember is, is that if you did not listen to the Mark 8 teaching, If you did not listen to last week's teaching, there's going to be a lot of of moments where you are not going to feel the full spectrum of our time together. So after the service is over, we will have a time for Q&R. And I called it Q&R, like I told you last week, for us to respond to questions. I don't necessarily have an answer to all the questions, but I will respond. But we will do it 10 minutes after the benediction because product placement, I need to eat this cliff Bar. All right? So... Sorry, it's my way of lightening the mood. Um, so I'll take 10 minutes after our benediction is over, and we're, if, if we all fit in this section, we'll, we'll gather over here for questions. But if we need to stay in this format, we will, and I will stay with you until um, whenever you deem your questions have been sufficiently responded to. Um, as a reminder of where we've been, as early as Genesis chapter 3, um, and, and I was listening, my, my son has a playlist of songs that he listens to to get jacked up about hockey, right? So he's, it's like his version of, I need to be pumped up because I'm going to go deliver the massive blow to somebody, right? And so one of the songs that he um, listened to had a line that said, even the devil was an angel. Um, and, I, and, I, I, and that really hit me hard yesterday um, because I want us to know that a lot of times, if we, keep, if we take our eyes off of Jesus, the first thing that can happen is selfishly we start to make everything about my own desire, my own thoughts, me, and I, I want attention. I want, and so I feel like that that was a great example to a lot of us that if we're not careful, if our eyes aren't really fixed on Jesus, we can easily be swayed. We can easily start to drift. And before long, we're in a place that we would have never imagined that we would have been, but we are there. And we've got to be very careful about that. And so in the first temptation of Adam and Eve, the question was, did God really say? And that's something that I've really been wrestling with in this particular Harmony series because I know that Jesus said, Father, would you make them one as we are one, right? There is no doubt about that that rolled off of Jesus' tongue. There's no doubt. Obviously, he didn't say it in English, but he said the equivalent of, Father, we want them to be one. And the outcome of our oneness is that the world would know that the Father sent the Son and that everything about the Son was true. And so harmony amongst us is vitally important to the world believing that the tomb is empty and that Jesus is alive. And so as we step into this today, the enemy is going to try to wedge, put wedges between us and drive separation and and go towards disunity, to go towards what is the opposite of harmony, (laughs) me. Um, And so 
you know, it's like, how do we begin to step into that today? And so the other thing that we began to talk about the last couple of weeks as a reminder is, do we follow Jesus on our own terms? Do we follow Jesus um, like many times like the disciples did by saying, ah, oh, Jesus, I think you might be taking us the wrong way or don't say that, Jesus. You know, we've got to be we've got to self evaluate through this whole time, this whole morning. It's like, am I putting limitations and constraints on Christ and or am I trying to say it's my way or you know something opposite of Jesus um, as Carrie Underwood said take the wheel right we need to be focused on what it is that Jesus wants for us and last week I mentioned this and not everybody agrees with me on this and I'm okay with this but I do not believe that the Bible um, supports the, the thing that we teach a lot of little kids, that all sins are equal. There are sins in the scriptures that are talked about differently. And sexual sins, whether heterosexual or same sex, it doesn't matter what, but any type of sexual temptation in the scriptures was always responded to with the word flee. It's the only one. It didn't say flee from money. It didn't say flee from greed. But now it says there's strong language towards a lot of those things. But the problem is, is that sexual temptations so draw us in that the early church and the leaders of the early church following after Christ said, in this one area, I need you to just run and uh, trying to reclaim some of that today. But also last week, we talked about the fact that it's so easy when we come up against an issue that's divisive, that we polarize. So we last week, when it talked about sex, we said how the church went towards fear. And the extreme was, about a thousand years ago, the church had legislated when couples in a married relationship could have sex, and it was only about 44 days a year. That's what fear caused, right? Out of 365 days, that does not satisfy, all right? I just want you guys to know that. And so they went out of fear, went towards legislating and legalizing everything, when you could, when you can't, and that is not what Jesus died to set us free from. Right, And then the other extreme we talked about last week was total freedom. Like it doesn't matter. Whatever I want, whenever I want, it's my decision. And But Jesus is in between. Obviously, if you are listening online later, my arms are extended because Christ is so good at standing in the gaps of the extremes. He meets us in the midst of wherever we are, wherever we find ourselves. And he offers us, I believe, a way and so the question that I've been trying to shape into our minds, almost like a reprogramming, so to speak, is to stop thinking about everything as, is it sin or is it not sin? I felt like the better question as we address this in our day and our time and our culture is, is it, if I continue to do this behavior, who is it making me out to become? Who am I becoming? Where am I? Where, if I continue to repeat, like last week, we talked about everything from... Um, masturbation to all types of self-satisfaction to premarital sex to dating and all this kind of stuff if i continue to move in this direction where is it going to take me and who am i becoming in the process so now another series of disclaimers solely on this particular topic for today but let me start with an opening illustration a few years ago there was a lawsuit filed against a bible publishing company for 70 million dollars 
the, the, the lawsuit centered around the passage of Scripture that we read today in the word homosexual. And the man suing the Bible company for $70 million listed in the lawsuit a couple of things I want to repeat to us today. It caused 20 years of distress. It caused pain and psychological damage. The lawsuit, in my opinion, and many other people's opinion, proves that this particular topic is the hottest topic in the church today. It is the most controversial topic. It is the one where there could be the greatest divide for those of you based upon your age in the room. Some of you that are older in this room are probably like cheering me on, but maybe through wrong motives today. And others that are younger in the room are like seriously nervous. And if you were to look at the plastic chair under you right now, it's probably damp from your sweat and perspiration because you are just wondering where we're going with all of this. And so we all are going to be influenced. And so I want to do an effective job of talking generationally today. Um, last week, I think I made the whole sexual talk to a younger generation and got an email from an older generation that said that talk, you may have said younger generation, but it was just as relevant to me and the older generation. And so I just want to say, I don't care how old you are, from the oldest to the youngest in the room, I believe that this is one of the hardest issues there is so much hurt and pain associated to this topic. So much that most of us in this room, um, unless it is seriously an issue for you, you have no understanding of how painful this discussion that we're having today really is. Maybe you are here today and you're gay um, and it took everything in your power to come. I just want to commend you for your heroic strength. Um, this, you probably even had to psych yourself up. And this is something that I think that some of you said, so I put it on a slide. Some of you actually may have said this to yourself coming in here today. I really like this church so far. I hope they don't screw it up. Um, this is what kept me up most of the night last night, is that I want our church to represent Christ. And I know that many of you are loving what God is doing here, but today could be a day that could be very hard for us to maintain unity and harmony. As I said at the beginning, this, this particular issue is very emotional for me. From 2008, when I sat in front of T-Volve restaurant with um, a dear friend, To just last year, to just last year, having somebody that I felt like represented Christ in such a powerful way choose to stop attending our church because I wouldn't do his marriage. So no matter what you believe today, I need us to start in our imagination for a moment so that we can walk through this um, with as much love and integrity and humility as we can. So if you will allow yourself for a moment to just let me shape your imagination just for a second. Some of you won't have to imagine this. This might be your story. Others of you, um, this may, you've maybe never taken something like this seriously or never really thought about it, and today might be the first time. And so I just ask for you to extend me some grace so I can walk you through this so this can be effective. I need you to imagine with me for a moment this morning the kind of pain that a gay person experiences growing up, especially in, in a religious environment like this. 
I need you to imagine being a child in that environment, getting ready to enter puberty. Everyone around you is beginning to talk about sex and the opposite sex, and you keep wondering, when am I going to feel like that? You are naturally more inclined to the people of the same sex, and as you are getting older, you start wondering, when is it going to go away? You say to yourself, I'm gay. Is this really happening to me? Maybe you come from a faith background and your family's been taking you to church and, and you find yourself every day in the lunchroom as you're opening your lunch begging God, God, I, would you change me? Like There's stories of the stories of people that I've been reading and talking to that their childhood prayers have been painful to read and to, to, to process. Daily, you wake up and the response to your prayers is nothing. Nothing has changed. And you are more resolute and determined to like the opposite sex. And so you go to the dances, you act like you like somebody, and you do all those things. And then you finally go to the church because you want to pay more attention to Jesus and what honors God. And you hear words like abomination. You hear jokes and Christian humor, condescending remarks, and you're determined to hide it to lock it away in a safe place that nobody will know and then turn that language or those coarse jokes towards you. But you know that you can't hold it down, and it eventually comes out. And then you try then the struggle to then how do I move forward, gay, and continue to worship and interact with people in a church setting. I want you guys to know that when I've been asked what are my top five things to, to teach on in Baltimore, this is not one of them. Um, like I said at the beginning, um, this has been incredibly difficult and painful. I'm teaching this in response to our lives. I'm teaching this as a moment to say I want to be a good pastor. I want to love us all well. I know that that it doesn't help that I am a white, married, with children man. I am not speaking this topic out of any sense of authenticity. It's not something that I've struggled with. It's not, I'm not coming to you, giving you a live testimony. Let me tell you how I found Jesus and how I'm dealing with same-sex attraction. So as a speaker with credentials, I have none. I am speaking to you solely as a pastor that loves his people and that wants us to walk together to figure out. I don't have a lot of authority on this issue. And the verses that we're going to look at require people that are incredibly gifted in the original languages of Scripture. I am not a Ph.D. in Greek, Aramaic, any type of language that would allow me to look up some sort of Jewish writing or early Greek writing and read it without anybody else helping me translate it. So I've had to lean into people that I trust that have dedicated their lives to helping people shape the way that they look at Scripture. And so this, at times, is going to be, as I will quote, way above my pay grade. This is not something, I am not the artist that puts the art on the wall. I am the curator that talks about the art. just want you guys to understand that. So today I am trying to talk to you about what I've seen, 
what I've read, what I believe is to be true of Scripture, and have gone to translations of Scripture, to people that translate the English language in a way that helps us, helps me begin to shape why I believe and what I value. I am not coming to you off the mountain with two iPads <laughs> saying to you, this is from the Lord, okay? I am sharing with you my journey on what I believe is an English word that we need to do away with, and I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. Here's more disclaimers. There are some things that are common in the discussion. There's language that is used in writings, whether it be news articles, websites, blogs, books, Christian literature. And so there's three of them that stand out to me. The first is this. Are you affirming or non-affirming? That's a term that I've heard. I'll tell you what, this is my least favorite of the ways that this discussion is framed. Because I can affirm things in people that I don't agree with. Because we're not all either full of truth or absent from truth. We all have some of it in us. That's why not all people need to say all secular music is wrong. Because there are times that the Lord uses some secular writers and secular authors to produce some great truth. Right? And so in any issue, I don't feel like the best way to shape it is affirming and non-affirming, so I'm not going to use that type of language today. There's also another way that this particular one has been discussed as classical and revisionist, and I don't care for that because it requires too much explanation. All right, So I am going to stay away from that one. But what I am going to shape the rest of our talk around is the last category, historical or progressive. And I believe for me, this has been what has helped me begin to walk through this because to me, I like the historical progressive because authors on both, quote, sides, I even hate saying that, the sides of how people based upon gender attraction follow Jesus use a lot of people that affirm the same-sex relationship in a, in a godly, monogamous relationship use the term about themselves called progressive thinking. And so I thought, well, you know, if that's the word they're using, then I'm going to use it, and I think it's great. But I stand towards this historical word because whether we understand it fully or not, the church for 1,600-plus years had a historical view. The progressive view did not come in until more recently. And so I felt like the best way to frame the argument, discussion, I hate the word argument, why did that come out? Um, that's why I wish we could edit on the fly and like back up and replay, but you just got to go with it. This is an auditory talk and there will be mistakes made. So just grace and peace and write them down and I'll respond to them in the Q&R time. All right. But the historic, I believe, because the church functioned this way, all denominations, including Catholic, Anglican, and many other 10,000-plus Protestant denominations, held the same view historically before a progressive mindset began to set in. So most of my talk today is going to be either quoting what I will call progressives or quoting what I call historical. All right? So when I say historical, I'm, I'm referencing people that believe that marriage is husband and wife, sex in that confines. If I say progressive, it is that there's room for same genders to be married and sex inside of that confines in a monogamous relationship, honoring to God. So there's two sides to this discussion, historical progressive. 
All right, and I said that way too many times. You can tell I'm nervous. So here's another series of questions that I think is important for us to process this with. I need you to ask yourself in the self-evaluation, what is my definition of a godly marriage and sexuality? What do you believe? And even if we could take time today to journal this and and end our service around 3 p.m., we are not going to do that. But I do need you to take time to write down what you believe and why you believe it. And then how how did I get this definition? Like once you write it down, say, how did I get this? And then do you have any scriptural support for your definition? All right. I just I feel like that's important aspect to add to this. That's how I've been addressing this issue now for seven years. Um, the latest question, how do the scriptures support this, obviously will show you from the historical point of view, which is a huge tell if you're a card player, of where I'm headed with this talk. And so I don't want that to cause discomfort. I just want you to know this is how I'm processing it and trying to verbalize it for you. But those of you who are not Christians here, I want to basically say I thank you for your courage because for me, I believe that there's authority still in the scriptures. But for many of you that don't believe that, the, what a lot of the support structures that I'm going to talk about, the words that we use, the ways that we define this may not make sense to you. And I want you to know I know that and I'm okay with that. And I want us to continue to talk through that together. Um, and I know it took a lot for some of you to be here today, and I'm, and I'm still fighting my emotions back. So I also want to say this, in light of this teaching, and in light of the Mark 8, being a disciple of Jesus, when you think about giving up everything, denying yourself, an eternal perspective, talking about Jesus publicly, that is an, exa- an insanely crazy concept. Most of us want to attend church and be freed from our sins so we can go to heaven, but any idea of self-denial, eternal perspective, and all, is really a crazy concept. We don't really come to church because we want to learn to give everything we have away. We really want to come to church to figure out what can God give me. And so we we struggle with that. So even the concept that is crazy. When we talked about sexuality last week from 1 Thessalonians 4 and many other places, when you start talking about um, being in a monogamous relationship for your entire life is very insane. Like, you're going to tell me you're going to only have one sexual partner for the remainder of your life? People look at you like, that's insane. That's crazy. Most people don't share that view. They, they automatically assume that you'll try four, five, six, ten, twelve, a hundred people out before you pick one. And then once you pick that one, you try to figure out ways of how do I still continue that, right? That lifestyle, but yet stay committed to one. So there are a lot of things that I'm going to say, unless we have a common root in Jesus, they're going to sound insane. They're going to sound crazy in our culture today. The idea of keeping a vow, forming a covenant, is a difficult concept in our culture today. People now, when you sign a commitment to buy a home, sign a 100-page document. Like, how many words does it take for us to say, I'll pay my mortgage? But yet, people are looking for ways to get out of covenant, to get out of commitments, and looking for ways to not maintain their word. There's so much of today that's shaped around our culture. So here, here's the way I'm divided this up. That was all my disclaimers in my introduction. Here's the points. We're going to talk about this three ways today. Historically, 
we're going to then go to what does the Bible say about same-sex relationships. So historically, I want you to just understand, how did we get here? It's going to be a factual walk since the 60s. That's really what I'm just going to do. I'm not, I'm not, it's not my opinion. I'm going to read a lot of quotes of people that have done historical research. And it's just going to be solely historical. We're not even going to talk about Jesus or the Bible in that particular that stretch. And then it's going to be, what does the Bible say about same-sex relationships? I'm going to run through five. I've narrowed it down to five. I cut two yesterday. Um, but we're going to try to be patient and go through those five texts. And then at the very end, I'm going to say, how do we love? Um, how do we love the gay community? How do we love each other well? Um, so the historic. Let me start with Historic. How did we get here? How did we arrive in such a violent cultural war? And I share the term violent intentionally. This war, so to speak, on sexuality, not only heterosexual but homosexual, from the sexual revolution to the, heterosexual, to the homosexual movement, has all been um, a violent war. And you can generally define a violent war based upon the, the worst the use of words, signs, God hates, that's violent, right? Other words, like um, forms of prejudice that are used against the church. There is so much language that I don't even feel like I can just roll off my tongue here today, but I think you know what I'm talking about, is that there has been a, not only at times physically violent, but there's been a verbally violent clash in cultures. And the church is just as guilty at using its tongue to harm as people that are outside of the church using their tongue to harm and intentionally maim people with their words. So if you don't agree with me, I would just ask that you go back historically and look at writings, look at people in the news and in the media and on shows as they talk about this struggle, and look at the words they choose to use about other people. It has been a violent cultural war. I do not like categorizing things, but like last week it was um, fear and freedom. This week is going to be justice and immorality. So as we step through this, historically, I want to talk about the justice issue, because to many people, this is a justice issue. And when you begin to look historically in the justice issue, it was always about equality and inclusion and equal rights and being identified and being valued and all of these things. But there was a massive tragic event that took place on June 28th of 1969 in Greenwich Village. It was a Stonewall Inn. Six days of rioting took place there. It is now referred to as the homosexual shot that was heard around the world. I would encourage you to go and read historically what took place over those six days and weep about what we can do to one another and what people can say to one another. And out of that shot that was heard around the world in 1973, the year that I was born, there was the formation of the Gay Liberation Front. That de Their declaration was on, quote, the war on normalcy. Their goal was to secure legitimacy of same-sex relationships and rights associated. And then this went on for several years until the AIDS epidemic hit. And if you were alive or your parents were alive when this was all hitting in the 70s and 80s, you, which most of you are looking at me like we were not, but for the few of you that were, I just want you to know there was a right for us to be in great panic because thousands upon thousands of people were dying. 
It wasn't just a, what are you doing to cause death? People were dying. And so this foundation, the Gay Liberation Front, had to shift their energies from telling a story to telling and changing people's mindsets towards homosexuality to just taking care of each other, making sure that people were getting medicine and were being dealt with with dignity and respect because a lot of people were avoiding them like the plague. AIDS brought great havoc. Then they realized that the only way they were going to help themselves was if they could figure out a way of raising money for medicine. And so they had to begin to change a narrative in the American culture in particular of how they were going to shift the thinking around these issues so that people would give money to AIDS research so that people that were sick could get medicine to be made well. And so that began to move towards February of 1988. And in February of 1988, the war conference was convened. 175 leading gay activists represented from across the country convened in Warrenton, Virginia. Why does everything happen in Warrenton, Virginia, or in Virginia, northern Virginia? I mean, um, was it in Virginia where, you know, all the outdoor concerts and people were getting to express themselves? I don't know, but I'm beginning to think that northern Virginia is very interesting. Um, But they convened in February of 1988 to establish a four-point agenda to move the gay rights movement across America. And Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen, who were Harvard-trained, Kirk and Madsen, emerged from the conference with what became known as the uh, homosexual mandate. It became a book, and I'm going to show it to you just here in a minute. But this this is from their strategy. This is what they came out saying needed to happen in 1988. Um, Desensitization, jamming, and converting. And rather than me summarize these three points from their writings, I just figured I would read some quotes from it. Under desensitization, the main thinking is to talk about gayness until the issue becomes thoroughly tiresome, Kirk and Madsen write. If you can get straights to think homosexuality is just another thing, uh, meriting no more than a shrug of the shoulders, then your battle for legal and social rights is virtually won. So desensitization was just getting people comfortable in saying and expressing things with their mouths that they hadn't been used to, much like me having to practice some of the words I've been using the last couple of weeks in a public setting because they're just not used to rolling off my tongue. The jamming. We, from, um, from Curtin Madsen, we intend to make the anti-gays look so nasty that average Americans will want to disassociate themselves from such types. When asked exactly how would they accomplish this feat, they would characterize conservatives and Christians as homo-hating bigots. Kirk and Madsen write, our propaganda could show show them being criticized, hated, shunned. It can depict gays experiencing horrific suffering as the direct result of homo-hatred, suffering of which even most bigots would be ashamed to be the cause. And then going on, we meaning conversion of the average American's emotions, mind, and will through a planned psychological attack in the form of propaganda fed to the nation via the media. They continue, we mean subverting the mechanism of prejudice to our own ends, using the very uh, processes that made America hate us to turn their hatred into warm regard, whether they like it or not. 
That's what jamming was in their writing, converting. Kirk and Madsen call for a two-pronged approach to neutralizing the Christian-led opposition. The first is they must muddy the moral waters by publicizing support for gays by more moderate churches and raising theological objections to our own about conservative interpretations of biblical teachings. And the second, and I quote, the final step of the strategy is to silence all opposition, is to push for legislation that will actually criminalize criticism of the homosexual lifestyle. And they go on to say this, the public should be persuaded that gays are victims of circumstances, that they no more choose their sexual orientation than their height. For all practical purposes, gays should be considered to have been born gay, even though sexual orientation for most humans seems to be the product of a complex interaction between innate predispositions and environmental factors during childhood and early adolescence. And to suggest in public that homosexual might be chosen is to open a can of worms labeled moral choice and sin and give the religious right a stick to beat us with. And if you want to know more of where I pulled this from, here's the book. I think we have a picture. It's called After the Ball, How America Will Conquer Its Fears and Hatreds of Gays in the 90s. Kirk and Madsen um, wrote that book. You can see right now on Amazon, it is $99. Um, And you can find some used copies in the $50 range. Um, But I would encourage you to look at history told um, from um, those leading and pioneering the late 80s and the 90s Um, what they viewed as a multi-point agenda. And to summarize their agenda, I want you to understand that in the book, this is how they summarized it. And this is even one of the men interviewed from the inn in Greenwich who was a part of the assault. And he said this, we need to summarize this as psychology, this is not a disorder. Law, this needs to be legal. Church, this is not a sin. And this all started in 1988. So many historians believe that this was the most calculated cultural shift ever. There are documents, and you can do the research. I'm not going to hand-feed you everything historically. I hope that some of you will now go and do some historical research on what influences actually were out there to shape our culture. Because like I said in the first week, there are two ways of being discipled. You can either let Jesus disciple you or you can let the world disciple you. I feel like the world is doing a really good job of discipling us, even though many of us feel like Jesus is discipling us. So we've got to be really careful, careful how we process all this information. But when you look at this, there is a ton of historical facts of ways that things have been coming and moving towards us. And even I even found the story of a man that came up to Kirk and Madsen and said, I am worth $500 million. You tell me what your agenda needs and we will fund it. So I want you guys to understand that there has been a massive movement to teach us how to think. And so today is, is are we allowing others to teach us or is God still involved in the discussion? We need to ask the Lord to continue. And, and am I, do, is what I believe true? And am I holding on to the God being a God of justice, but yet am I allowing myself to be shaped by this God of justice because God is a God of justice. But I also know that to many people, like the imagination walk I had a start on, this is a key issue and this brings up much emotion. So on one side of this particular equation, 
we have the justice talk. And then on the other side, and another form of discipling arm that came out of the 60s and 70s, what I'm going to refer to as an immorality movement. The moral majority was established. It is a historical organization that was founded that stood up for morality. Its primary leader was Jerry Falwell. All right? Some of you are like, okay, now I understand. I I want to be very clear on this. I went to the university that Jerry Falwell started. I served on his church staff for several years in their middle school and high school ministries. I've had one-on-one conversations with Jerry Falwell. There was even one time I was walking in the parking lot, and I thought I was just walking between two cars. And as I was walking by, this mammoth hand came out of the window and smacked me on the chest like it was going to take me off my feet. And it was Jerry Falwell saying, Ellis Prince, how's this young champion? All right. And I was on a church staff of like 300 people. All right. And he knew my name. I can't separate from that. All right, and so I'm going to share with you, frankly, what the Memorial Majority published as their talking points, and then at the very end tell you some of my thoughts through one scripture verse because of the sake of time. But here's the talking points. Well, let me say one more thing I think is important that I respected Jerry Falwell for. He had a personal relationship with the founder of Hustler Magazine. He had a very public relationship with this particular individual, so much so that this individual attended his funeral, okay? So I want you to know that even though there's a lot of controversy around this, there were people that were totally opposite of Jerry that did like him at some level, even though they hated what he stood for. Um, So here's their major talking points. The moral majority said, we want to promote the traditional vision of the family life. We want opposition to media outlets that, it, that claims to promote the anti-family agenda. We want to oppose the e- Equal Rights Amendment and the Strategic Arms Limitations Talks. We want to oppose the state-recognized um, recognition or acceptance of, of homosexual acts. We are prohibiting abortion, even in cases of, that involve incest, rape, and pregnancies where the life of the mother are at stake. We also are supporting prayer in Christian schools. We are marketing to Jews and to non-Christians for conversion to conservative Christianity. Those were their stated talking points. So I you to know that's what, so that's this justice agenda had an immorality agenda and they were clashing over this. And these are some quotes from Jerry Falwell. So just, no, I'm not agreeing with things that he's saying. I'm just giving you historical facts. Jerry Falwell said, AIDS is not just God's punishment for homosexuals. It is God's punishment for the society that tolerates homosexuals. He goes on to say, the idea that religion and politics don't mix was invented by the devil to keep Christians from running their own country. He goes on to say, someone must not be afraid to say moral perversion is wrong. If we do not act now, homosexuals will own America. And if you and I do not speak up now, this homosexual steamroller will literally crush all decent men and women and children who get in its way, and our nation will pay a terrible price. Those were quotes from one of my spiritual mentors. At this same time, some of you might be aware of what's called DOMA, D-O-M-A, the Defense of Marriage Act. I just had, you know, I just laughed out loud when I saw which president signed it. I just, I mean, I'm not being very political. I'm trying not to be rude in saying that, right? But I think it is funny in light of everything that's happening in last week's talk, 
the week to talk before, everything that's happening, even our presidents are falling victim to a cultural war. There are so many things happening in and around us that are, are, are pushing us and driving us towards disunity and hatred and violence of all different types. And so in the midst of the last 40 to 50 years, there has been a violent cultural war that has been taking place. And here's the situation. And we must be honest about this. One of these two sides has most influenced you. Every one of us sitting in here, we have been influenced mostly by one side or the other, especially if I go back to those original questions, you couldn't come up with any scriptures to support your mindset. You just immediately said, this is how I feel. This is what I think. And so I want to begin to shape what it looks like for us to be in the middle of all that. And this is what I would say to Jerry Falwell today if he was still alive. 1 Corinthians 5.12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not a judge? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. This is a church discussion. I am talking to you today because you are in church. If you did not realize that, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to blindside you. But we are here because we are trying to decide, are we following Jesus or are we following cultural influences? Who are we becoming? The church is now viewed because of these two movements as anti-gay and terribly political. There are so many people now in our city that don't want anything to do with church because to them the church is anti-gay and too political. That is the result of this cultural war. Most of our gut instincts are shaped by our parents and the ways that we viewed this war. And so that ends my historical side of this discussion. There's so many things that I cut out of this. And again, if you want more historical research, I'm going to suggest some, book, some books for you to read at the very end. So what does the Bible say? Part two. So we're moving on from historical facts to what the Bible actually says. And so how do we push aside all the cultural voices, all the justice voices, all the immorality voices that have been vying for our mental attention and say, just for a few moments, I want to solely know what does the Bible say and how does this impact us? And so as we begin to look at this, I want to say this. Here's my best attempt. The story of Scripture is about brokenness to restoration. It's about brokenness to restoration. There will be moments where you're not going to like what I'm going to have to say or how I interpret certain Scriptures. And some of the Scriptures, much like Ashley read, seem very harsh. And I want us to begin to understand this, whether you're gay or straight. This is going to be tough. But in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, this is where the verses start. In Genesis 2, 18, the Lord said, It is not good for man to be alone, and I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. And so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But, the Adam, no, but to Adam no suitable helper was found. And so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. 
And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and he closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man and he brought her to him. And the man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman for she is taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and unites to his wife and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This particular passage of scripture from Genesis 1 into 2 is this beautiful story of how creation took order. There's beauty in it. There's human flourishing in it. There's even rich human purpose. Like some of us have lost the idea that work is actually worship. But in Genesis 1 and 2, we begin to see how we can honor and worship God through our work. It also is the introduction to gender, and it also is an induction to sexuality amongst us. And so the controversy over this homosexuality issue is around the words suitable helper. And so let me just quickly jump to a progressive opinion. This is a summary of many books, and so I'm summarizing a lot of writers into this is what I believe is the progressive thought behind suitable helper. The opinion, and I'm saying this with humility, I might be wrong in my assumption, okay? But the opinion is, is that Adam didn't need a woman but a human. Adam needed humanity and not an animal. Adam needed Eve's humanity and not her gender, the gay people who are attracted to the opposite sex, the most important issue to them is human touch. There's so much weight in how men and women interact, and that's part of the reason why Ginger's going to talk about women and men flourishing a little bit more next week. But when we begin to step into this, Eve, is Eve's humanness the only value to her? If we look at this Genesis 2, is Eve's humanness the only value? And I believe that her gender is very important. The Hebrew word for suitable is this word konegdo, all right? Now, I'm I'm stepping into something that, like, look, I've got a Russian editing my slides who's been speaking English for six years, right? Because I am terrible at English. I am not a master of Hebrew, Greek, or any other language, right? Because that's just not how I'm wired. But when you look into this Konegda word, I've decided to go to some theologians that I trust with an opinion of that definition. So here we go. Preston Sprinkle says this about Konegdo. The Hebrew word translated suitable by the NIV is Konegdo, and it is only used here in the Old Testament in Genesis 2:18 and 20. To, excuse me, in chapter 2, verse 20. Konegdo is somewhat difficult to translate into English since it is a compound word. I do understand that. Made up of key, which means as or like, or negged, um, which means opposite, against, or in front of. So together the word means something like as opposite him or like against him. It's a complex word that captures how it is that Eve can qualify as the per- perfect partner for Adam. So I want you guys to know that to me one of my key thoughts is that it's not that Adam, it's not just that she's like Adam, but she's different. Preston goes on to say, so here's the relevant point. If it were simply Eve's humanness that made her a helper, then the word key, like, would have been just fine. The verse would then read, I will make a helper like, key, him. But to make the point that Adam needed not just another human, but a different sort of human, a female, God used the word konegdo. This word, potentially conveys both similarity key and dissimilarity negged. Eve is human and not an animal, which is why she is like Adam, 
but she is also a female and not a male, which is why she is different than Adam or need opposite him. This is also the number one quoted verse in the New Testament about marriage, by the way, which we'll get to that in just a moment. But two things stand out to me in Genesis 2. Number one, both partners need to be human. And two, both partners display sexual differences, connecto. I believe this passage lays the foundation of thought and truth where we see um, a vision for how male and females come together in harmony and sexual unity as the height of God's creative order. It is the last part of creation that was this beautiful trajectory of harmony and creativity and power and all that was coming together in both the man and female flourishing. Some of you are like, great, you're starting in Genesis. That means you're going to touch on Sodom and Gomorrah. No, I cut that. Um, And there's a reason for that. I'm going to do a whole teaching on it later on because many people believe Sodom and Gomorrah was torched because of their sexual practices. But there's some other things in the scriptures that I think are worth our attention. And if you're impatient, you can look it up. The next passage is Leviticus chapters 18 and 20. How many of you love the book of Leviticus? All right, there's three of you and you're over 55. Must point out the obvious. Um, Leviticus 18:22. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Leviticus 20:13. If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. The context of this passage is to the children of Israel as they're getting ready to enter the promised land. Leviticus was written to them before they got to go possess a promised gift to them. God wanted them to be different than the nations they were driving out. And so he's writing this to them. They were to have different practices. They were, there's this idea of holiness and being set apart. The word holiness appears 87 times in the book of Leviticus. It is, holiness is the overarching theme. The command to Israel was to go and to be a holy nation. So the book of Leviticus was was set up where the first 16 chapters were about holy things, like holy cups and holy altars and holy tents and holy ground and holy spoons and holy chandeliers and holy... Everything was holy. Everything was designed like you have a specific way of making it, designing it, sacrificing on it, all this stuff. There was a perfect way of doing all of it. It was all about holiness in regards to the things that they had and the ways they possess. And then the last half of the book is what is referred to as the holiness code where they were to learn to be holy as God was holy. They were to be holy people, set-apart people for him. So these verses have, over the last six decades in particular, caused incredible controversy in the church. Let's consider two things. These are two very important questions. What is the issue that is forbidden in this text, and is it still relevant for us today? The progressive view, from my opinion, trying to be as respectful as I can, trying to summarize other people's words, right? Remember, I'm speaking to you as a married white man with children, right? So I I have a totally different background of thought on this from the way I was raised and the way I was born. So trying to read and understand progressive thinking, what I'm finding is, is that most progressive thinkers in writing think that the Old Testament was for a different people, that the New Testament is for us. That is a old covenant. We are a new covenant. 
Let me tell you why I don't believe that is correct thinking. This is, again, my opinion, how I've approached this. Let me tell you why. We don't throw out the Old Testament. We don't find, we're, we, we have not been able to find scriptures in the New Testament that say cut off the other half or throw away the Old Covenant. There are language that we can step into that do, does talk about the purpose and the place, but there's this idea of grafting, not an idea of throwing away that is referenced. And Jesus references Leviticus 19, so if it was totally irrelevant, why would he even quote from it? The New Testament writers, ten times, both Peter and Paul, refer to it um, in their description of what people following Jesus should look like when they're thinking holy thoughts and looking for holy living. Leviticus 19 reads like the Sermon on the Mount. If you were to read Leviticus 19, it actually has the same rhythm and cadence like Jesus standing up on a mountain telling people to cut off their hands. Jesus said some pretty incredible things. So there's three things about the Old Testament I think we need to understand. And this is me making it as simple as possible. And I'll take as many questions later as we need to. But there was considered a moral code, a code, a, cer- a ceremonial code, and civil law. So moral law, ceremonial law, and civil law that impacted Jewish people. Because of Jesus, because of Emmanuel, because of the Messiah, I believe that the ceremonial and civil laws went with Christ to the grave. But the moral laws of God are for all time. There's nothing about Jesus that says God's plan for humanity is now shifted and changed. Let me now take a minute to just tell you about thinking in Greco world because some of the conversations I've had with many of you was like, man, homosexuality is just something that our generation has had to deal with, our parents' generation, and it's not been something that has been documented and written about. In the, the people that were living in the Old Testament, people that are living in New Testament, people 500 years before Jesus and 500 years after Jesus were facing the same things that you and I are facing here today. And so let me historically walk through this just for a minute. I believe that there is what I believe some thoughts that needs to change and end Wright, anytime I don't know what to say, N.T. Wright says it best. He says this, as a classicist, which I am not, N.T. Wright is, I have to say that when I read Plato's symposium, I have to admit to you, I do not read Plato's symposium. Or when I read the accounts from early Roman Empire of the practice of homosexuality, then it seems to me that they knew just as much about it as we do. In particular, a point which is often missed, they knew a great deal about what people would regard as long-term, reasonable, stable relationships between two people of the same gender. This is not a modern invention. It is already there in Plato. The idea that Paul's day, it was always a matter of exploitation of younger men by older men or whatever. Of course, there was plenty of that then, as there is today. But it was by no means the only thinking. They knew about the whole range of options there. I think we have been conned by Michael Freuche, how do you say his last name? He was a French philosopher in the 50s and 60s, into thinking this is a new phenomenon. I want you guys to know, I believe it's key for us to understand that Paul knew what we are dealing with. The things that we are facing were not new to him. One more quote from Thomas Hubbard. He's a historian. The coincidence 
of such severity on the part of moralist writers from the flagrant and open display of every form of homosexual behavior by Nero and other practitioners indicates a culture in which attitudes about this issue increasingly define one's ideological and moral position. In other words, homosexuality in this era, um, the early imperial age of Rome, may have ceased to be merely another practice of personal pleasure and began to be viewed as an essential and central category of personal identity exclusive of an antithetical, well, directly opposed to heterosexual orientation. So, quote from Thomas Hubbard. They had categories. They had logically documented what they thought homosexuals suffered from. You can go back and read historical documents from before Jesus and after Jesus of why they thought people had same-sex sex and attraction. So it's not a new thing. It has been in the world, and it is a part of the world in every generation and every turn. So from Genesis to Leviticus to the Greco-Roman world, now let me jump into the New Testament for the sake of time, which, oh my goodness, <laughs> um, I just saw the clock. Uh, so... Romans chapter 1, the core question is, what is happening here and does it apply to me? Um, Romans 1 is a powerful theological work from the Apostle Paul. Romans will hit you repeatedly like Mike, like Mike Tyson wanting to eat your ear. Okay, That's what it feels like. It is brutal. It comes at you. And if you don't have a, a, a way of reading it and processing it, let me just give you a highlight of the first three chapters. Chapter 1, Gentiles, you're sinners. Chapter 2, Jews, you're sinners. Chapter 3, you're all sinners. That's how he starts out. And then at the very end of chapter 3, he starts to get into a discourse about apart from Jesus, whether you're Jew or Gentile, we are in serious trouble that our eyes need to be fixed on Jesus. Even in chapter 8 of Romans, he starts to talk about how the earth is groaning for Jesus. And then the good news that he interlays in the book of Romans is forgiveness of our sins through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's the big picture. So let me stop. Let me jump into Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 24, because the idea here is creator versus created. Do we love God or do we love ourselves is kind of this idea. There's also this term natural and unnatural that you're going to begin to hear. And let me begin to walk through this. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, to, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. And it would be too bad if he just stopped there. And he goes on, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So the progressive thought towards this passage, the best I can summarize it, is this. This is not about committed, monogamous, same sexual relationship. This is about excess. This is about passion. This is about lust. This is about things that are way outside the parameters of committed relationships. This is exploitive sex in their interpretation and about the abuse of power. So the historic side of this claim is that sin against our nature, as in Genesis, not against nature in regards to our desire. So this idea is, is that I, I need to make sure that I am functioning as God designed me and not just a 
powerful, exploitive language. Paul is filling this passage with the counts from Genesis 1 and 2, and I want to outline some of that. This is how God made the world. He's saying this to the Romans, and this is how the Roman world has distorted it. I'm not a fan of Kevin DeYoung. I'm not. I think at times when he communicates about Jesus, he can be a jerk. Okay? But if I met him, I would tell him that, but I also would love him and try to be as kind as I can to him. But he wrote a very short book on this issue, and this is from that book, and this is one of the best things he said in the book. The honest interpreter should recognize how general people's language is. He doesn't describe homosexual prostitution, men having sex with boys or reckless orgies, nor does he bemoan the passive partner, the male male sexual encounters, as many as the Greco-Roman commentaries did. Paul does not draw attention to violating the social pecking order of the Roman class system as other authors did. And contrary to the opinion of modern scholars, Paul does not showcase a low view of women here. Rather, Paul uses basic terms and language of mutuality, male and female, natural and unnatural, one another, to describe consensual same-sex acts. And affirming, what I mean by affirming, a progressive thinker, Lewis Crumpton, says this, According to one interpretation, Paul's words here are not directed at bona fide homosexuals in committed relationships. But such a reading, however well-intended, intentioned, seems strained and unhistorical. Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstances. The idea that homosexuals might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any other Jew in the early Christian church. So it was natural relations as defined by Genesis 1 and 2, in my opinion, Romans 1. Definition, creator, created, Natural order, unnatural order, my interpretation through Romans 1. The second passage, which was the passage Ashley read for us today, 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9. Or do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, um, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. First Timothy 1.8, we're not going to teach on this, but I just want to read it to you. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That that confirms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So going back to 1 Corinthians 6, there's two words that are used here that I think is really important of why Paul was talking specifically to the Corinthian church that excelled in the gifts, but they had a sexuality issue, both heterosexual and homosexual issue that they were facing. And in this particular passage, there's two words used, malakoi and arsenikoitol, something like that, tie, something like that. Is that closer? All right. This passage, malakoi, means soft, soft material, 
Uh, it's also used in other parts of the New Testament and the Bible. Um, Arsinoquitai literally means men, means men who bed men or lie with other men. This is, the, this is a word that is not common. And this is the word I was referencing earlier that I think Paul made up um, or that he made for a context. I'm going to explain that just in a minute. The passage translation has been a cause of tons of psychological harm. So here's my question. Step outside of my teaching just for a moment. What is homosexuality? Is it orientation? Is it behavior? Is it practice? Can you be homosexual in your orientation and not in your practice? This is why I hate the word homosexuality or homosexual. Because in our culture today, when it was initially coined, it does not mean the same thing that it once did. It has so many other meanings. It has so many other uses. It has so many different backgrounds and things that people believe about it or say about it. And it is destroying the relationships that we have inside of our church. It's loaded with cultural meaning, and it is causing tons of hurt. Let me show you this graphic really quickly. You're not going to be able to read everything on it, but when you look at this, these are the major Bible translations of how they translate Malakoi and Asurikotai um, and how... Painful it is. Men who practice homosexuality, anyone practicing homosexuality, homosexuality, boy prostitution, practicing homosexuals, it's, it just really just comes at you over and over and over again. And underneath the definition of homosexuals in our culture, if you think orientation and you read this, if you think that it's about who I am or that this is me, like it is now Ellis Prince. This is devastating to read and to process in the way that these English words have been translated here. I wish we could do away with it. I love the NIV's translation, men who have sex with men. I believe it's the best translation. It has everything to do with behavior and not orientation. The progressive thought here is that the language is unclear there is no assertacoitai in Greek literature prior to Paul's use of the term. This speaks of callboys or abusive relationships. So I want to state the facts here just for a moment. I believe that there's so much exploitation in the Roman world, they would have understood that they had words for it. They would have used those words if it was solely meaning that. Right, that's one of my pushback points from a historical perspective on the progressive thinking. Paul is trying to take what I believe is holiness language out of the Old Testament and helping Romans understand holiness following after Jesus Christ. So I'm going to do for you something that I don't think most of us will get, but for the five of you in the room, this is for you. This is the actual Septuagint, which was the Greek translation that, the, that Paul would have had access to, and this is what it looks like. Leviticus 18.22 um, let's go ahead and next slide. I can't pronounce the sentence on top, so I'm just going to read you the English quotation. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. That is the Septuagint, which would have been the, 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 the Bible, I guess, so to speak, the Greek translation of the Old Testament used by Jews in the first century. So you see um, Arsinos and um, Quiton in this. And then in Leviticus 20, 13, here's... The translation in Greek, whoever shall lie with a male as with a woman. And you see the highlighted words, arsenos kostin. Um, so you can see from the second part in particular, and this is where it helped me shape my thinking. I'm not saying it's going to help you shape yours. 
from the second part of this, I believe Paul was bringing together words from the holiness code to help Greeks understand what it looked like to follow after Jesus in their lives sexually. So let me jump now from the holiness language here to Jesus. It's, we really could start with Jesus and end with Jesus, but I really wanted to end on Jesus' words out of Matthew 19 because it really is all about Jesus. Now, the issue with this particular passage of Scripture, this is not about homosexuality. In this passage of Scripture is actually about divorce. But like Jesus as the excellent teacher, a Pharisee comes to him, drops a word. Jesus says, open door, let me now teach you. Now, let, listen with that mentality. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife from any in every reason? In verse 4, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And then listen to Jesus' reply. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts are hard. Were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Can you see why following Jesus is very hard? The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. And Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it was given. Now, this is the part that, I'm going, that I was hoping to launch myself into, a discussion about gender issues, but I'm having to table this, so here's a foretaste of where we're going to go. This is the key text I'm going to be using. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and then there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live life like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So there's a, a foreshadowing of where I'm going with our gender talk in a few weeks. But here, going back, I believe Jesus is referencing Genesis. It's obvious that he's going back to Genesis. I also believe that this is a great way for us to start looking at the last two chapters in Revelation. If you read the last two chapters of Revelation and read Matthew 19 and Genesis chapters 1 and 2, I, begin, I believe we begin to see more and more what unity amongst the genders really looks like. Adam needed a human different God wanted people to be human but holy. There's rebellion against God that is seen that, um, when we don't act like the created and we, we tell him that he's not our creator. There's rebellion in that. And Paul uses what I believe is strong language to the Greeks to see that they needed to follow the creator instead. And so back to my first three questions. What do you believe about the issue and why? What is my definition of godly marriage and sexuality? How do I get this definition? And how do the scriptures support the definition? I agree with Justin Lee. He says this, Just because an attraction or a drive is biological doesn't mean it's okay to act on. We all have inborn tendencies to sin in any number of ways. If gay people's same-sex attractions were inborn, that would necessarily mean it's okay to act on them. And if we all agree that gay sex is sinful, that wouldn't necessarily mean that same-sex attractions aren't inborn. Is it sin? And does it have biological roots? Are two completely separate questions. He actually writes that in his book called Torn. 
we should offer people tremendous compassion and kindness. James 1.5 actually talks about a desire that gives birth to sin, but the desire is not called sin. There's a call to repentance and integrity, especially in this issue of male-on-male and women-on-women sexual interaction. Everybody loves grace until you're the one called out on an issue. I just put that on a slide. Let that sink in. I do not want people that are same-sex attracted in the room to feel like we're the ones that are cramming grace down your throat this morning because we all have an issue. We all have something. And when we have to eat grace, it really hurts. It's very painful. A couple of years ago, I had a man come up to me after a very long service like this one. And he came up to me firing red. And he said, you need to go and put on the front page of the church website that marriage is between man and a woman and you need to make sure that there's scriptures that say we are against homosexuality. And I looked at this man and I said, right underneath of that or right above that, can I put in there that men shouldn't hit their wives and come to this church? Because his wife had just been in my office two weeks prior because he had physically assaulted her. So I just want you guys to understand, I fight for all of you. Whatever your struggles, whatever you are facing, there is pain in it for all of us. And when you and I learn to walk as brothers and sisters, we step into that and it makes it incredibly difficult. But we have got to let Christ be the one that is the center of all of our discussions. Can people attend this church and disagree with me? I can get an amen from that. I want you to know this church is available for everybody. We just need to say, let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Let Jesus do his work, all right? And we will have in-house discussions. We will talk about hard things. We will learn to extend grace and truth and peace to one another, okay? But at the same time, I do not want same-sex attracted people to feel like the carpet was pulled out from underneath them where they feel like we love this church and then now we found out they're, they're, they don't believe in my lifestyle like I do or whatever it is and they feel hurt because we snookered you. And for there are some of you in here that have felt that way by me. Now, people have always asked me face-to-face. I have told you exactly what I believe to be true of God's word to us. But there are a lot of us that we have not been talking about it from the stage. So this morning might be extremely hurtful for some of you. That's why I started out with the quote, I love this church, don't screw it up. Because for a lot of us in here right now, what I'm saying from a historical standpoint is crushing to you. And I know it is. And I'm sorry for that. I don't want this to drive us apart. So here are some books that I want to recommend. Each category of these books is written from a progressive and historic point of view. Matthew Vines, God and Gay Christians, phenomenal book. Would love for you to read it. But you have to read it with Preston Sprinkle's book, People to be Loved. One's historic, one's progressive. And I think together they make a tearful journey. You will weep. You will cry. You will feel all different types of emotions, but I think we need to balance both voices, progressive and historical. Two other books. These are testimonial books. Torn, I referenced it, by Justin Lee, Progressive Thinking. Washed and Waiting by Wesley Hill. I actually tried to get Wesley Hill to be here today because I wanted him to be here in person, but I didn't have thousands of dollars. Um, So 
the, uh, but his book, Washed and Waiting and, and Torn by Justin Lee, um, caused me to weep tremendously and to develop new compassions and sensitivities uh, towards people that have different struggles than I do. So how do we love the gay community? I want you guys to understand this. Jesus is not easy. Matthew chapter 5 and 6, cut off hands, lust, oh my, you've already committed adultery. I mean, he is brutal through the Sermon on the Mount. But as soon as the Sermon on the Mount is over, what happens? He heals a Roman's daughter. He goes to a tax collector's house. He engages in meals with religious leaders. And he has women that are in the prostitution industry anointing his feet and wiping his, his, his body with their hair. People that did not agree with the Sermon on the Mount loved Jesus. They loved him. And there is no reason why people that do not believe in Christ like we do stop. They, like, there's no reason for them not to love us. We should be their best friends. We should be room at the table. We should love them well. We should be able to interact with them. We've got to get rid of the violent cultural war that is taking place. And we've got to begin to step towards people like Jesus did. Jesus didn't compromise the conviction. Read the Sermon on the Mount. But he had incredible compassion for other people. And we need to be a church that does the very same thing. Conviction and compassion, and I'm going to land there. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the patience of my brothers and sisters, and I pray for the parents with the children, and I pray that Rachel doesn't quit. Um, Lord, I ask that uh, I ask that we would stay one, that we would love well but that we would keep our eyes on Christ and let Christ be the author and the perfecter of our faith, not cultural voices with strategies from either a morality standpoint or a justice standpoint or any other voice. Father, we want the voice and the voice alone to be Jesus Christ. And as we come to the table right now, Father, this is a crazy time to come to the table, in my opinion, as a pastor. But this is the best time for us to realize that it is Jesus it is his body broken. It is his blood poured out for us. That is the reason why we even have the ability to be in this room together with the diversity of this room. Father, it gave me great joy in my heart today to introduce my mom to a man from Ghana, a man from the Dominican, a, a lady from Russia, and, and, and people are from around the world. Lord, we're in this room, and I am grateful for the diversity. And Father, there's so much other diversity in here, but we want to be one in Jesus Christ. And we know that you are a healer and a restorer, and you can bring us together at the table. But, Father, we want to be true disciples of Jesus. We need to learn to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow after you. So, Father, would you help us to do that today? And we pray this in Christ's name. Guys, go ahead and stand. Parents, if you have kids upstairs, would you please run to go get them during this song? Um, the rest of us, if you can wait just a little longer, I want us to come to the table. Um, we're going to just do one song and we're going to do a fast version of it. So don't wait till it feels right. Just go. All right. But if you need prayer, there will be time and space for us to do that together. I do want to invite you after the benediction to stick around for Q and R. So would you join me in singing this song? I think it's a great song for us to end on. It's a great song of focus, but yet come to the table and remind each other of God's great love uh, for you.